point on a map surrounded by rebels raising up peacemakers. Today on The Pursuit, Cassandra and Edison Lee. Welcome to The Pursuit, unfiltered conversations with faith leaders about their journeys to pursue God. I'm your host, Richard Lee, and today my guests are Cassandra and Edison Lee. Cassandra and Edison are co-founders of Justice Rising, an organization that is educating children living in war zones, empowering them to break the cycle of war and build a culture of peace. They do this by building schools and empowering communities in places like the DRC, Iraq, and Syria. In other words, they're working in some of the hardest places in the world, on the ground, to invest in local leaders to build a future of peace. They're the real deal. Now, I know a few of their board members, what's up, April, Thad, but I first heard about Justice Rising right when they were starting out many years ago. So I'm so glad that you will get to hear the story of Cassandra and Edison and Justice Rising today. So Cassandra, let's start with you. Where did you grow up? I actually grew up in Canada in a very small, well, it's not small, it's large, but it has very small population in a place called Saskatchewan. And uh, how cold is it up there? It is very cold. It's usually about once a year, we become the coldest place in the world. What? Down to like minus 50, I believe, (laughs) for about a month. When I flew out there to Canada to meet her parents, actually, for the first time, I put on a pretty brave face and I was like, oh, minus 50, I could totally do this. It's not bad. But inside, I was dying a little. You should have picked a different time of year to go visit her. Exactly. I know. And every time we seem to go visit my parents, it's always the coldest time of year. My mom's like, you guys really have to try to come in the summer. And so what was it like growing up in cold Saskatchewan? It was it was great. I always loved the cold actually growing up. So I didn't notice anything about it. And I grew up in a Christian home met Jesus when I was three. I was just a very little girl. And most people just assume when you're three, you don't, you don't know, you just kind of pray a prayer. But for me, it was always this personal relationship. And so I used to draw pictures to Jesus or of me and Jesus. And that was just, it was always just this very personal relationship. And ever since I was about eight years old, wanted to work overseas. And at 10, I felt very specifically about working in Congo and war zones. Okay, hold on. I have a lot of questions. So first of all, how does a three-year-old develop a personal relationship with Jesus? Like, what was that experience like? I think it was partially my parents. Yeah, growing up in a Christian home, and we went to church, and they were close with Jesus as well. But I think... I think it just always hit me. It was all, it was never told to me like, oh, well, you're a child, so you might not understand this, or you won't fully, um, you can't have a walk with Jesus until you're older. It was just, hey, this is Jesus. This is who he is. You can be best friends with Jesus. (laughs) And as a three-year-old, I was like, cool, I'm on it. (laughs) And just always, even as a really young girl, kindergarten, grade one, just had a really rich like prayer life with Jesus because I was taught you just talk to him like a friend and that he will talk back and um, and I loved reading my Bible and worship it was just it was always very personal. So then you also mentioned you were called overseas at eight years old. Yes. Yeah, so I don't fully remember how that part came to be. 
we had some, again, I grew up in like small town Saskatchewan. So we had maybe a couple missionaries come to our church, but I don't fully remember what that moment was. I just remember I was eight when I started telling everyone I'm going to be a missionary. And my mom, again, she just heard it and she's like, great. If that's what God's calling you to do, then ask him where you're supposed to go. And so I prayed that for about two years. And when I was 10 years old, really felt like God was speaking to me the word Zaire, which at the time I had no clue where that was. <sighs> Looked for it on a map, could never find it. Again, I'm growing up in like the cold part is the coldest part of Canada. So I just assumed it would be somewhere cold. So I kept looking for it, could never find it, and really felt like God was speaking to me or showing me these pictures in my mind's eye of different parts of the world and teaching and building schools. I had no clue what any of this meant. And then eventually I felt like God really spoke again and said, okay, go to your map, center of Africa. That is where I'm calling you to go. And sure enough, go to a map, center of Africa and Zaire in big, bold letters right in the middle. And a couple of years later, its name changed to the Congo. But at that point, it was about 96, 97, and it was the height of Congo's war. And so really, as from 10 years on, I really grew up pouring over stories of um, child soldiers and victims of rape. And it was the rape capital of the world, worst place to be a woman or a child. Oh my gosh. And it was not really reported about. So I remember just as a kid, all growing up, just looking for any stories I could find and then reading it and just weeping and being like, we have to do something. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I have to be a part of bringing change or yeah. doing something so that this doesn't just carry on. So the picture that, that you're painting here is that you as a 10-year-old middle schooler, you're pouring over obscure stories of child soldiers in a completely foreign country, all the while sitting in frigid Saskatchewan in Canada. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that you guys work in Congo now is just remarkable to think of somebody who is clearly doing exactly what she's meant to do. Yeah. And it's definitely evolved and looks different in many ways. But yeah, I it really is. From that point, I've been praying into it and been dreaming of working in the Congo. And so I'm very, very lucky that we get to continue to do this. Okay. So then Edison, let's talk a little bit about how you grew up. I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, Washington. Um, I am the youngest of, of two kids. I grew up in a Korean-American immigrant household. And so my upbringing is quite different than Cass's growing up in rural Saskatchewan in Canada. But, um, but yeah, I, I think my you know, upbringing was not explicitly Christian. I think in some ways is maybe culturally Christian. Uh, my dad grew up Catholic and, and my mom, she grew up in the church, but uh, she wasn't practicing at that time. Okay. I remember when I was around three years old and I think the main concern, uh, you know, for my parents anyway, as immigrant parents, and as is often the case for Korean American parents uh, for for their children, they had pretty high aspirations for what they wanted for me. And you know, I remember distinctly when I was you know three, three and a half years old, and you know they sat me down one day and you know very seriously and asked me, "What do you want to be when you grow up, Edison?" And of course, as a three year old, that's probably the furthest thing from your mind. And all I can think about was the fact that I really enjoyed and kind of had this unusual aptitude for drawing and and creating 
And so all I could really tell them was, I think I want to be an artist. And my very practically minded Korean mother interjected and said, no, you don't want to be an artist. You want to be an architect. And so <laughs> that, that kind of set the stage for some of their aspirations for me. And, and I think from an early age, I, I really just wanted to be an architect, uh, as strange as they, that may sound. But I spent a lot of my time drawing, you know, house plans and, and elevations, which seems really weird. Uh, but I, I really just had a, a kind of a knack for it. And so that's something that I really enjoy growing up. And, um, and so that, that I had a pretty normal childhood for the most part. Um, I think the only real uh, impactful faith influence in my life was probably my grandmother uh-huh. on my mom's side. And so she actually lived with us. My parents both worked. Um, and, and so I, you know, in, in some ways, my grandma raised uh, both me and my brother. And, you know, just in terms of my earliest memories and my earliest, I guess, impressions of faith, relationship with Jesus, I really came from her. And I, I just remember, you know, in the middle of the night, you know, maybe waking up for a glass of water, going to the bathroom and, and just passing by her room. And at, you know, two, three in the morning, I would just overhear my grandma praying and interceding in the room. And so that, that's just left such a profound mark on my life. And, you know, much later on, once I reached college, um, that, that's really when I came to faith. But that, that's always kind of stuck with me, that, that image of my grandma just praying. So what was it like for you growing up as a Korean American in the Pacific Northwest? I think for me, it, it, it kind of changed over time. I grew up in a fairly white um, suburb where when we first moved there, we were probably one of maybe, I don't know, two or three Korean American families. I can recall. And so it, it, it was fairly easy for the most part, but challenging in different ways. And so, of course, just kind of reconciling, you know, who you are and your identity and your racial identity at a pretty early age, that, that can be really challenging, especially when your you know, peers are all majority white. And so that's something that I had to really kind of wrestle with. And probably for a long time, you know, not until I reached Later on in middle school and high school, you know, more Asian American families started moving into the area. And so that that kind of changed the demographic of, you know, friends and people that I I was exposed to outside of, you know, the community that we had originally moved into. So Cassandra, let's go back to you for a second. Um, You, uh, last we left you off, you were uh, 18. Mm -hmm. So what was the journey like for you coming out of high school you sort of have this direction that you've been wanting to go the whole time. What was graduating high school like for you? Right. Well, the plan was like my family was always very, very educated and very into education. That is what you did after high school. And you get multiple degrees, like whatever it was, your journey always included education. Yeah. And I was going into my senior year of high school and we were, I was talking to my parents, always really close to them. And just kind of saying like, well, what is next? What do I do? What kind of degree do I pursue? I was applying to universities in Canada. And then my parents came to me and they kind of said, they're like, I don't think you're supposed to go to school after. I don't know what's next, but like something, something is there. Something's different. Your parents said that to you. My parents said that to me, which was very abnormal. Yeah. I felt the same way. And I was like, you know what? I don't even think it's just not going to university. I was like, I don't think I'm going to be at my high school graduation. And 
my parents were like, well, that doesn't make sense. Like whatever happened, you would be at your high school graduation. And I kept saying, I don't know where in Africa, but I think I'm supposed to be on the continent. And none of it made sense. But eventually um, they, we found a program, just kind of fell on our lap kind of thing that started June 1st, which would have me graduate school two months early, two months ahead of my classmates. And two weeks after my 18th birthday, moved to Mozambique. Wow. And my parents and I, we all just kind of had a little cry, um, but I got accepted. And I was supposed to go for three months and ended up going for about a year. So I was just going to go to that program, but then I just never left. <laughs> it was the early days of the program. And so they were a little more flexible with students staying on. And I stayed on and then they were the first ones to send me to Congo and give me kind of my first taste. Um, I was only there for about six weeks with a small team, but it was my first taste of really being in the center of Africa and seeing life there and continuing to grow my heart and passion for that region. Yeah. What was it like for you? Because you had your, you had your heart set on Africa and Congo for so long. What was it like for you to finally get there? It felt really surreal, but I think at the time I, it was one of those things where I knew, knew that I was supposed to be there, but I didn't know what I was going to do. And I what my part would be. And so that first year actually really triggered the next five years of my life of traveling around different war zones, mostly in Africa, um, but also in the Middle East and really looking and saying, okay, what is happening? What is being done? What are the programs that are working? What are things that maybe aren't working? And where do I fit in? And so for the next five years, actually, after that, um, I felt like God kind of invited me in this journey of just really living amongst the people, living sometimes in mud huts in southern Sudan, or living in a home for rescued girl child soldiers in northern Uganda, and just kind of traveling around asking that question, what do I do? What's my peace? And how, how do I respond? So I did that, yeah, for about five years. So from that time that you went to Mozambique, you stayed five years just traveling around sort of stepping into whatever situation God would put in front of you? Kind of. I went straight from Mozambique back to Canada, lived in London a little bit, okay, and then moved to LA. And LA was the one that launched me. And it was a church called Expression 58 back when they were just starting because no one really knew what to do with me. I was this young single girl wanting to go to war zones which sounds like a massive liability. <laughs> right. The church and Jennifer and Hona Toledo, who are now the head pastors, they were like, you want to do this? You feel like God's calling you? Great. We'll support you. And they were really the ones to send me out and let me travel around under their leadership to different war zones. As those five years that you were spent sort of stepping into whatever God put in front of you, did you feel like you were getting closer and closer to what God wanted you to be doing? Or did you feel like this is wandering? This is like, am I, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this distracting me from, you know, my ultimate calling? I think for the first four years, I would say, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time, but it felt really random because I was helping and volunteering with a lot of different groups and had some side projects that I was starting, but it was never, it wasn't as organized. Um, people didn't want to give me money because they're like, girl, you're going to die in a war zone. Oh my gosh. Very limited funds and a very meager diet. 
and just really trusting God. Okay, where do I go next? Where are you taking me? And, but I couldn't, I knew I couldn't do anything else. Like I knew I was right where he wanted me. And it was about, yeah, year four where I think I was getting tired and a little burnt out from seeing rural communities that had suffered a lot of war and conflict and seeing so much and hearing so many stories. And I was like, God, if there's not a solution, if there is not peace that can transform communities, like if there's not something tangible we can really do to make a change, then I can't do this. Like it is too hard. It's too overwhelming yeah. if you if you don't have a strategy. And it was at that point that I really felt like God stepped in and spoke and was like, great. I'm so glad you asked. School, build schools, use education as a way to transform areas and really catalyze that change that we want to see. And so it was never just, I want to do a project. It was looking and saying, okay, how do we go to the roots? How do we disrupt cycles of war? Yeah. Because don't do something that, you know, is really transformative. If we're just putting a bandaid on these massive issues, we're going to come back in five years, 10 years, 20 years down the line and see the same problem repeating and seeing this kids that we're meeting now, will see their children or their grandchildren in the same situation. And so God speaking education, that was really I was really a key turning point for me in saying, okay, this is the solution. This is maybe not the, the fix all for everything, but it was a tangible solution that we could bring. And what we still believe is one of the best ways to bring change to a community. So I want to put a pin on that and get back to Edison. So Edison, your experience, now you're in college. Do you finish out your architecture degree? Yeah, I, I do actually. Um, even though I kind of went through this pretty dramatic um, conversion story, I guess. In some ways, it kind of reshaped and, and reformed my priorities in terms of what I wanted. I was still very much passionate about architecture, still completed my degree. Um, and architecture school is pretty notorious for weeding out a lot of <laughs> students. They, they definitely put you to work. You know, of the 65 that graduated, I think only, you know, there was 14 or 15 that ended up securing jobs in architecture uh, coming out of a school. Wow. I was actually one of the, you know, 14, 15 that ended up lining up a job. And I actually turned, you know, I decided to defer it. And um, I wanted to you know, spend some time traveling. And there was an opportunity for me to go overseas to Zimbabwe. And Zimbabwe, you know, was no walk in the park um, in 2009 either. They had just gone right. a pretty volatile, you know, political process, um, you know, a pretty bad cholera outbreak, and they were just experiencing crazy hyperinflation in, in the country. How did you think of going to Zimbabwe? Yeah, it, it was kind of a combination of factors. Um, but I, I you know, just really felt like God was calling me to go to the nations um, and experience what it's like in other contexts outside of the U.S. and my little bubble that I had grown so comfortable in. And so I, I think personally, I just wanted to experience what God was doing in other places. And at that time, I, I knew of some of the challenges that Zimbabwe was going through as a country and had a connection through some other missionaries that uh, were setting up a base there. And so they, they invited me. It, it just happened right around the you know, graduation time. And I really spent a lot of time praying and thinking about it and just kind of went through a lot of personal journey with God and him inviting me into that process of going overseas and and, and living in, in a different culture and context. 
and it just really, you know, forced me to to ask God some really hard questions about some of the levels of human suffering I was seeing over there, and and really just not understanding what my role could be, uh, but at the same time not wanting to diminish or minimize you know, what people were already doing in, in that local context. So what did you do after your year in Zimbabwe? Yeah, so I, I came back uh, to the States. Um, I had originally planned on taking up that job in, in an architecture firm again. I think at that point, after a year spending time in Zimbabwe, I just couldn't go back to life as normal. I also just saw so many of the challenges and the institutional failures in, in a place like Zimbabwe. And, and a lot of the, the humanitarian aid, you know, you know, the failings of the international community in a place like Zimbabwe. But I think for me, I really saw a huge value in private sector development and job creation and really investing in local human capacity and human capital. And so I kind of switched gears a little bit and I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll go into consulting or go into finance or something like that. So I, you know, not too long after I ended up back in, back on the continent actually, but this time I ended up going to Rwanda. I ended up taking up a job as a management consultant for a small boutique strategy consulting shop, a bunch of American guys who started originally. And so we were really just advising, you know, high impact, you know, small to medium sized enterprises in Rwanda and East Africa. Okay. So it was a totally different about phase and, and pivot from where I had originally started in, in architecture and, and doing some you know, missionary work and development work in Zimbabwe. I think that was kind of the new trajectory and the path that it, I, I really felt God leading me to, toward. And so I was there for about a year um, also, um, and then eventually transitioned after a year you know, working at an investment bank uh, in LA and um, started working at an investment bank to the delight of my parents who were like, finally, he has a job that actually pays. <laughs> so they were right. thrilled, but ended up going back working for you know just several years in, in banking. And I think the idea there and, and what I felt God was leading me toward is I, I really felt like I needed to hone and build up some of the skills that I needed. And it really kind of built up the toolbox that I had. I knew that I wanted to do something to create opportunity and redemptive opportunity for entrepreneurs or you know community leaders in different places that I felt like I could maybe you know have some impact in. That's what originally led me to you know deciding, hey, you know, why don't I work in finance and, and banking for a little while, build up a set of skills, and hopefully, I'll, you know, those marketable skills can be useful in, in you know, starting an organization or starting a business or uh, investing in others or something like that. Um, that that was the, the thinking around that. So Cassandra, last time we left you, you had just received this vision to sort of start schools in these uh, places that you're going to. One of the questions that I had was, had you seen any examples of this model working? Like, did you see examples of schools that were transforming communities? I had seen, I had seen some schools that were doing great work, but I had also just, after hearing and feeling like God was speaking to me about education, researching and Googling online, like, how do you start a school? And (laughs) looking online, really seeing the statistics kind of backing this up of, okay, education in a conflict zone changes everything. It reduces the amount of young girls who are going to be taken as child brides and eventually become child mothers. It reduces the amount of young boys who would join the army and become child soldiers. Violence against women decreases. 
you have even the threat of conflict. There's a statistic that says if you increase secondary enrollment from 30% to 60% in a community, you can cut the risk of conflict in half. So just all these statistics. So that was a lot of what I was going off. Like, okay, it does work. And so from that point, I had connected with some incredible local leaders in the Congo. I was talking to them and telling them kind of what God had said and what I was thinking. And it turns out that some of our contacts who we had just connected with through the church, they actually, this one guy who was our main point, he was a career educator. He had been then a principal and then became a pastor, but his whole background was rich in education. And so started working with him and going deep into conflict areas that had no schools and were war-torn and looking and saying, okay, where does nobody else want to go? That's where we need to be. And setting up schools as we went. So we had about three schools in the early days before, before even setting up Justice Rising. And they were just a little more ragtag. If I had $100, I would buy a window or a door and didn't necessarily put together a robust budget, but just was really going off of saying, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. This is the need. This is the community that we're connecting with and moving from there. So it was a little more raw at the beginning. Yeah, but it was just you taking what you had to build a school in whatever way that you could step by step. Pretty much. And just the incredible local team, local people that we were working with, just really busting our butts together. So how soon after that did the two of you meet? Yeah, so we we met at church and some friends were, Edison had just gotten back from Zimbabwe. And Cass had just gotten back on furlough from Congo. And the senior pastor at the church, he basically just came came to us and said, hey, she works in Africa, you work in Africa. Clearly, this makes sense. So you guys should you know, hook up or like meet and go out, out on a date or something. So you guys just meet. And uh, Cassandra, you are building these schools in Congo. And Edison, you've just gotten back from Zimbabwe and you know gathering financial skills. And you ended up in, in going to Rwanda. What was dating like for you guys at that point? Dating was really different then. It's amazing how far technology has come in the last six, eight years or whatever. Because it was very much the, we would call each other on our cell phone and it was that really long delay of like, hello, and then you wait. Yeah. Well, this was also pre-WhatsApp. And I mean, I think the iPhone was only like three years old. So pretty nascent stages of smartphone. So Mm -hmm. it's it's very different. Dating was really hard in the early days. And we would often end up breaking up when one of us would go deep into, I don't know, the jungle or something. Like literally breaking up, not breaking up the phone call, like literally breaking up? (laughs) Literally breaking up, yes. We had a very unorthodox courtship and relationship. You know, I, I was in Rwanda and, you know, she would come in and out of Rwanda at that time. But Cass was also going into some pretty dicey areas. And so, you know, in, to give you an example, she basically hired this UN, chartered this helicopter um, to go into a pretty intense area called Walikale, which is in the UN classified red zone. Wow. And so she dropped in by helicopter uh, with one of her, her contacts on the ground at that time. And she was, you know, I, I was at that time, you know, we were you know talking back and forth through text messages and things like that. But she was just completely 
you know, on her own and surrounded by rebel soldiers and things like that. So it, it was just a very different dating journey. So Cassandra, I just want to ask you, Edison tells us these stories about being surrounded by rebel soldiers. When you're telling your story, you, you're you just saying phrases like going into war-torn countries. What sort of situation did you find yourself in that you're being face-to-face with these rebel soldiers? And you know, what was that experience like? I think several times when I would talk with different contacts on the ground, especially larger organizations and um, institutions, and they would say, oh, this area over here is really war-torn. People are dying and starving and just absolutely traumatized. So no one wants to go there. You should go over here to the city where it's safer and more people are. And, right. and it just boggled my mind of like, no, if, if this other area is really war torn, like that's where we need to be. And if everyone else is too nervous, like send in the Christians because all these promises that we don't have to be afraid and that God goes with us and that he has a strategy for peace for these areas, like send send me, I'll go. Mm. And so it was always kind of looking and talking with my team and strategizing saying, how can we go into the worst areas that no one else wants to go to? And so, yes, one time I talked with the UN and they agreed to transport us into this area to really do a scouting mission and to see, okay, can we build a school here? What's the need? But the problem was they... (laughs) They dropped me off. We did our trip, but then they did not pick me up again. And so I was left in this very war-torn, very volatile. I shouldn't even just say Very remote. Very remote area. (laughs) By yourself? Just myself and my, like one of our team members who was Congolese. So. Oh my gosh. I was definitely the only foreigner in this area. Yeah. And so it was a very, very interesting area. And yes, in the middle of the night, because it's a war zone. Rebels came and surrounded the house and tried to break in, but it was, it's a mud hut. And it was really only, the door was only held together by some string, like some rope. But I just think it was so Jesus because these soldiers, they never, they never got in. They could never figure it out. I don't think they tried the door because they assumed the door was going to be locked. And so they were trying the windows and they could never get in and we could hear this commotion. And I remember just sitting there being like, huh, like there's nothing I can do. There's no one I can call. Like if Jesus doesn't come, (laughs) this is it. And then we heard this loud noise. We heard this like screaming and sound like pots and pans and had no clue what was going on. And we could tell that the rebels had left. So we went back to sleep and woke up the next morning to find out that the community had seen these soldiers, like just a handful of soldiers come in and surround our house. And they knew like, oh, that's where the foreigners staying. And to them, I was their guest. And so these women had gathered together, these women leaders of the village with pots and pans, and they all ran and yelled and banged these pots and pans and scared the soldiers off and protected us. (laughs) So I'm just like, man, Jesus and these women were (laughs) amazing. So I don't want to sensationalize it, but if the rebels had gotten in, what do you think would have happened? Um, I think I would have been someone's wife. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah, no, it is. We often encounter warlords because of the areas we work. 
And I've gotten more marriage proposals than I know what to do with. I don't, I don't know how sincere those marriage proposals are. It might just be more a call for some kind of ransom or something like that. It's probably the more likely scenario. Yes. The only way I get out of the marriage proposal is by buying my life back. So it is a little. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So then after you build these schools, sort of prove the model, what does the genesis of Justice Rising look like? So we had three schools, but again, they were little ragtag schools and no one knew where to give money. We weren't a real organization. We had no budget or really business plan. And nor did I necessarily have that as the vision at the beginning. It was just, okay, I'm following Jesus. And Edison comes in with a much more business background. Right. He looked and said, okay, we could come and we could actually really scale this impact and take the promises that God's given us, but really expand them and see such a greater impact if we put a little bit more organization to this. And so shortly after we were married, we decided to turn it into a 501c3 and register it and really start justice rising and look at how we can build more schools with a goal of building 40 schools and to really look at other war-torn contexts and really see what we could do with this. But I think also it, it wasn't just about building schools. And, and something that we tell people often is that, you know, building schools is kind of the easy part. That there are plenty of organizations out there that are doing good work in building schools in in Africa. And that, that's not a new story necessarily. But I think the kind of differentiator for us that we didn't really see a ton of organizations doing is how to use education and access to quality, conflict sensitive education as a way to build up leaders, to change the narrative in some of these war affected areas that have experienced you know, years, if not decades of conflict. Yeah. And really using education as this tool for bringing about transformation and peace um, through the people that you know are educated through our schools, and so that that really became the story and kind of the broader vision of the organization. So as you guys have been building Justice Rising, you guys end up building schools not just in Congo but in Syria and in other places as well. Yes, we we always knew we wanted to really expand it, but it was knowing that timing is so critical and saying, okay, we don't want to scale it too quickly um, and neglect what God's doing in the Congo and what our projects are doing there. And so we went to the Middle East a couple of times to, to do scouting trips and felt like God kept saying, okay, now, now is the time. So we've slowly been connecting with partners in both Iraq and Syria to rebuild schools that ISIS has destroyed or partner with schools that really suffered because of ISIS. So what I find remarkable is that you are working in countries that so many people are leaving. Do you find it very easy to get in? It's not. It's not (laughs) very easy to get in. Um, I I think even with, you know, working in a place like Syria, I mean, that, that is extremely difficult to to start work there. You know, just even from a regulatory standpoint, I mean, there's so many different sanctions against the country. And so, you know, there are these really obscure legal you know, phrases um, that, you know, that are published by the Department of Homeland Security about, you know, providing material support for terrorism. Yeah. And it's just like all these random things that we had to really do a lot of diligence on and speak with a lot of legal counsel to make sure that we're above board and doing everything by the book. So we had to just do so much um, just back-end research and make sure that we vet all the partners that we're working with and making sure that, yeah, we're, we're going about 
the right way. So it, it definitely wasn't easy by any means, um, but something that we really felt passionate about uh, and really felt called for that matter uh, in working in some of these regions and, you know, the right partnerships and the right opportunities uh, opened up at the right time. So I guess one of the questions that I've had is, as I've heard about the work of Justice Rising, what are some of the uh, changes that you're seeing in the communities where you've built these schools? It's been really fun to see all that's happened in the last several years um, in the communities and in our students and our teachers. Our, our teachers even, to me, have been some of the, the funnest to see. And you just see that the hope they have or the excitement that they have for their communities and the way they talk about peace. We have one teacher, he had been wanting to work with Justice Rising for several years and finally got a job with us, started working his way up from being a teacher and eventually a principal and now oversees um, a couple schools. Yeah, And he's like, there's a difference between what we're doing and what a regular school is doing. He's like, what we're doing is we are raising up peacemakers and like these peacemakers are going into their community. And he's like, it's not just one student walking around, but it's this student impacting their families and the families reaching their neighbors. And it, it just goes out from there. And so it's been really fun to be able to, to see the growth and the change in some of these communities that we've been in for, for several years now. I think we also see and, and recognize that the change doesn't happen overnight. It, it does take a lot of work and effort and, and it's, it's a transformative process that the community itself is going through. And that change effort is led by the members of that community. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about education is that you're really reaching everyone within that community and not just, you know, the select few. And it really gives people the tools to really take ownership and responsibility for their own lives and the community at large to really change the narrative of what that community is and can become. Just to even give one specific example, um, we are working in a community called Colombe, and it's about six hours outside of Goma in a fairly remote, um, heavily armed area. You know, it's it's been rebel occupied for the past you know decade plus. Um, and one of our students that that we got connected uh, to through that community, uh, I'll, I'll just call him John. He he ended up coming out of a rebel group, so he was a child soldier, you know, an armed child combatant for probably around two years. Certainly not insignificant when you're young and that's such a foundational period in, in, in your life. Um, but he ended up going to you know, school and, and was months away from graduating from secondary school. And he was gonna go back home and had heard from you know, some of his family members that his sister had been killed. And what had happened was that there was this boy that he had grown up with who had also been kind of in similar you know, groups. And he had taken a liking to John's sister. And he wanted to marry her, but she you know, rebuffed his you know, proposal. She wanted to complete school herself. And the guy just felt jilted. So he ended up you know, gathering a group of his friends. And he just, you know, they came to the house and, and they raped and killed her. Oh, my God. And so John heard about this and he was just, you know, understandably just completely filled with rage and, and, and just anger. And he had planned on going back to his community and saying, you know, I'm going to go back to my community. I know exactly where I can find a gun and I'm going to kill that guy for killing my sister. And I know that I'm going to get away with it because, you know, th there's impunity. There's yeah. no rule of law in the village. 
And so he knew he could get away from and get get away with it. But he started to think about it and he took a moment to pause. And ultimately, the decision that he had come to was that he had gone through a lot of change personally. In that span of going back to school, he was months away from graduating from secondary school. Um, and he had also been through a personal you know, faith journey himself. And he just decided that, you know, that's not who I am. I am called to build peace in my communities. And I'm going to just choose to forgive this person. Wow. You know, the power of forgiveness and the power of that education and, you know, his personal faith journey, you know, the power and impact that that had instead of, you know, perpetuating the cycle of violence and, and conflict, he chose in that moment to end it. And I think that's the real power of education in some of these communities. It, it provides a different pathway that, you know, it, it just shows students and, and children that, hey, look, you don't have to continue on this path. Um, you can choose a different path for yourself. I know at IJM, we have seen the model of transforming a justice system and seeing the impact that it has in communities. There's a part of me that looks around and goes, you know, why isn't everybody doing this? I imagine you've seen the impact that building a school in, in the communities that are hit so hard by war, and you're seeing the transformation that is happening by just building a school. And I imagine you guys must be looking around at the rest of these organizations and saying, why isn't everybody building schools? Sometimes, yes. And we often think like, there's such power in education. And we're like, why don't we all work to really invest more deeply in quality education. But like Edison said, building the school is the easy part. And then afterwards, it really is, what do you do with the school? And how do you really have quality education that's affordable and also bring in a quality peace building program and like all the different facets? So I do understand the one that can be challenging. And two, sometimes it is a longer work. Like it is not going to take a year and suddenly you're like, everything's done. <laughs> right. Well done, everybody. It is a long-term slow process, but I really believe and something I believe that our organization is going after is long-term change is what's going to be sustainable. And I, I think we also have to remember that you know education in and of itself is not a silver bullet. It's how you approach it. And I think it's well documented throughout history that education in some cases depending on the regime that's in power, can sometimes exacerbate conflict. You know, it, it's you know, an old adage, but you know, the victors are the ones who write history. Mm. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's not just the curriculum or, you know, it, it's not just a school and not just, you know, providing education, but what type of knowledge and what type of uh, information is being taught in some of these schools. And it, it, again, it, it, it's not just you know, this rote process, but you know, school and education should really be a much broader holistic process of developing the whole person. You know, it involves character education and social emotional learning. And, and that's a big component of what we do and, and, you know, a big part of why our programs are effective. How has it been as co-founders and also husband and wife, how has it been being married to each other, but also married to the co-founder of your organization. It's great. No, I'm just <laughs> it's great all the time. <laughs> it actually has been really, really wonderful. And we had, we had people tell us even before we started working together, you can have a great marriage, but still not be able to work with your spouse. So if it doesn't work, it's okay. And the first six months were so hard working together. Maybe even the first year. Yeah. It was a big challenge. It definitely. Was. That we almost wonder, like, can we do this? 
or should we, should we just be married and not work together? But thankfully we had amazing friends who also work with our spouse, who we talked a lot with. We went to, um, kind of a marriage therapist and we were like, can we do this? And thankfully she had also worked with her husband in a war zone of all places. I know she was really, really great. And so she's like, it can be done. Here's some tools. And it's been, it's been really uh, like, it's still a lot of work, but it's been really great and really fun to work with your spouse at the end of the day. I think it really helps also that we have very distinct roles in the organization now. I think early on, we just wore whatever hat was thrown at us. And now I think we have pretty, you know, distinct roles where um, Cassandra does, you know, very specific things and I do very specific things. And, you know, we do, of course, overlap at times, but I think just having um, and compartmentalizing some of those roles makes a huge difference. Huge difference. What would you say to someone who is at any of those sort of pivotal moments in your respective journeys, whether it be, you know, having a hard time in college or somebody feeling like in high school, like, you know, they're headed in a different direction or whether it's a 10 year old being called to a war zone or a three year old being told, you know, like someone younger in the, in your journey, what would you, what advice would you give them based upon sort of like your own journey and some of the things that you've learned? No, I, I, I don't know if I have a prescriptive answer for that. If anything, just what, whatever path that they're on, I think is just part, you know, just enjoying and really staying present within that journey because every process is going to yield a different outcome. Yeah. It's difficult for me to say, oh, you know, this is a particular, you know, prescriptive path that you have to take. And I think, you know, both Cass and, and my journey is kind of a, a good example for that. It's, you know, we, we have both done very different things and we both, you know, pursued very different paths and ended up in a very similar place. But I think it's the journey ultimately. And I think as you press in, ask questions, you stay curious, I think doors will naturally open up and just trusting the process and trusting that God, um, he, he's more jealous for your, you know, for the calling that he has on your life than you can be for yourself. And so I think just trusting that process and trusting that he's faithful. Yeah. And I would also say kind of following the path of peace and whatever that may look like following the path of peace and really following, okay, where's God taking me? What does that look like? Led me to a war zone. And Sometimes it led me, you know, to living in London or living in LA or New York, going to school or not going to school. And it was really the whole time. I was just, okay, God, what are you saying? What are you doing? And I had so many people tell me so many times, whatever I chose was wrong. And really making sure that the people you have in your life, who you are letting speak into your life are just really wise solid people because sometimes your journey won't look like what what the people on the outskirts may think it should as long as you're really following jesus and listening to sound wise counsel from from your inner circle following the path of peace cassandra and edison have been walking that path throughout their lives and it's brought them time and time again into the heart of war zones Because for Justice Rising, the path of peace is a path that reaches those who have been torn apart by war. But hopefully their story of courage and justice is inspiring you to follow on your path of peace that God is revealing to you. You can follow the work of Justice Rising on Instagram at justice underscore rising. Don't forget that underscore. And you can follow Cassandra and Edison as well. I'll put their Instagram profiles in the show notes. 
but you can always find out the accounts of our guests by following The Pursuit on social at The Pursuit Cast. Please follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, review. I know, I know, I'm asking for a lot. You know, a year and a half ago, I started this podcast because I wanted to inspire people through the stories of the journeys of faith leaders. I wanted to inspire people to keep pursuing God along the path. And more and more people are listening. So thank you. You're the whole reason I started this. And hopefully more and more people will be listening because the pursuit with Richard Lee was just added to the Missio Alliance podcast network, along with a bunch of other great podcasts. Go check them out at missioalliance.org. So thanks to Missio Alliance and the Sola Network for believing in what we're doing here. Now, as we go, remember, remember, you may not know where your journey ends, but you can find God all along the path. Actually, I don't know. 2010. 2010? Yeah. Well, Cassandra, luckily, you can always look back on this podcast to remember when you met your husband. Right? Thank God.